Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 and the plan, God willing, over these next uh, two Sunday evenings is to break this chapter into two parts. If you just notice there in uh, verse 3, our chapter calls these three different parts one parable together, the parable of the lost things, if you like. However, our Bibles usually have those headings in there and break it into three, three parables from Christ Jesus on the lost sheep, the lost coin, which we'll look at this evening, looking at repentance and faith from God's perspective, and then the parable of the prodigal son, or more accurately, the two lost sons, uh, next Lord's Day evening, looking at repentance and faith from humanity's uh, perspective. And the point is that these are interrelated, as I hope we will see in both message and application. So firstly, please Look with me at Luke chapter 15. We'll read the first 10 verses, the first two of these parables, one set in the wilderness, one set in in a village. It's Jesse Ryle says of this chapter, few chapters perhaps have done more good to the souls of men. Here with me, the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing." And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. Thus reads God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in great expectation because we know your promises. And we pray that you will open up this portion of your word to us, that it will help us, that it will motivate us, that it will change us. And may you be glorified by this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there have only been a few times in my life when I've been physically lost. It's only ever been brief for me, never really been in much danger. Uh, Nobody has really had to ever rescue me physically. So for me, it's only ever been briefly inconvenient, perhaps a bit distressing when I was a a young boy, maybe annoying, but never never really dangerous. But I wonder perhaps if you've been in a position where you are completely lost, completely, beyond all of your abilities, 
to rectify the situation. There's nothing you can do. Completely powerless. Well, that's the, the picture we find in our passage uh, this evening. It must be a horrible feeling when you come to that realization. You've tried everything. You've come to the end of yourself. You don't know which way to go. There's, there's nothing I can do. But these situations, you see, can also be life-threatening. We sometimes see them on the, the news. Some amazing stories about being lost and then being, being found. But there are stories that end tragically as well. I recently read about a lady called Geraldine Lage, and she got lost on the Appalachian Trail in Maine, 2013. She left the path in the woods just for a moment, just a few yards to go to the bathroom, and she got disoriented. She never found the path again. She survived 26 days writing her diary, and her body was found almost three years later. The effort to save her was enormous. There were dogs and aircraft and hundreds of people trying to help. When they eventually found her body, she was less than two miles from the trail. After all the wandering, she was only 60 meters from a huge opening in the forest where she would have been easily seen from, from the air. Not far at all from a logging road if she had known the way to go. She could have been out and safe in 30 minutes walking if she knew the right direction. It was tragic. But you see, when you lose track of where you are, you don't know which way improves your situation and which way makes it worse. How much more important in the spiritual sense, in your spiritual life, being lost spiritually has devastating eternal consequences. But in, in the spiritual sense, Scripture, of course, tells us that we are all born as unbelievers, all born lost, all born destined for eternal hell because of your sin. What do you do? Well, in some senses, I'm happy to tell you this evening that Jesus has done everything necessary. Geraldine in men didn't know which way to go. But you have it right here in front of you. In the Bible. Whether you've never become a believer or whether you are a believer straying from the path, it's all here. Here in the Word of God is the answer. It's available to all of us this evening. We don't have to remain lost. So first let's consider the, the context and background of, of this passage in Luke chapter 15. You see, Jesus uses this illustration of being lost regularly throughout Scripture, spends a lot of time of it. It's the entire focus of this chapter, but it's also the entire emphasis of his ministry. Luke 19 verse 10, he's speaking to Zacchaeus, and he tells him his mission statement. For the Son of Man, referring to himself, has come, here's the purpose, to seek and to save that which was lost. Come to do two things. To seek, to save a specific group of people, the lost. Within that group of the lost, he has a people. 
They are His. They will be with Him forever. They will be found. They come to Him. They follow Him. He says exactly the same thing in the context of a very similar illustration in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18. He's talking of little ones coming to Him. No stumbling blocks. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then he goes on again with that core message or illustration from our parable. What what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He uses similar imagery in in different messages. And it's, it's all really to show you that this concept of lostness is one that the Lord Jesus Christ emphasizes again and again. We need to take notice. Why? Because you need to see your lostness for a purpose, seeking, finding, or saving, or from the perspective of the one who is lost, being found. I think the point to draw out here is that by the time we reach this portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 15, much has happened. Lines have been drawn in the sand already. Patterns have been established in the ministry of Jesus. And what we've seen is that Jesus is the sinner's friend. Jesus had demonstrated a pattern of welcoming those who we will categorize as as outcasts, as, as sinners. We'll come to that in a moment. But he's also established a pattern of going head to head and challenging the religious rulers of the day. It's not their first encounter, challenging the the status quo. He's questioning this established, this recognized, perhaps accepted perceptions of the time, the patterns that were there. He's going against the grain right from the start of his life. That's a pattern too. He was born as king of kings, but humbly in a stable, not in a palace. And then when he grew and his, his time came, He didn't come to the temple. He didn't come with a fanfare to these teachers of the law, to these scribes, to these Pharisees and priests. You can can imagine it maybe, can't you? Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for all you've done upholding my word. I'm finally here. The Messiah you've been waiting for. Okay, team, gather around. This is the plan. Don't you think that's that's what they might have expected when the Messiah came? Some recognition, some reward. They're the ones that had done all this faithful service in the temple, keeping it functioning all those years in anticipation of the one that was coming. Surely these men are the Messiah's men. That's where he'll go, to the temple. No. What we find is a group of men who for the most part have drifted, and they're lost. But you see, to those around them, they look righteous. These ones look like the ones that are following God. 
See, just because you were part of the children of Israel, or even the bloodline of Levi, and, and thus a priest, that doesn't guarantee that you're one of the true people of God. I find it interesting in places like Matthew 15, verse 24, this is speaking of the Syrophoenician woman. He points out that there are lost sheep within the people of Israel. He tells his disciples about the lost sheep of Israel too in Matthew chapter 10. Surely not, Lord, we're God's chosen people. But he's showing them their lostness, religious or not. It's not new though, is it? Happened in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 50 verse 6, my people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds, their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. See, Christ Jesus came to bring truth. He came to correct these errors. He came as the true Messiah. Back in chapter 12, he's, he's dividing men. He's unapologetically condemning the religious leaders. So many examples. Chapter 11, verse 42 onwards. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. He doesn't hold back. But he's doing this to show all sinners, including these religious leaders, that they need to follow him in order to truly please God. He's showing the lostness of humanity wherever it is found. So what we find in Luke chapter 15 is an invitation to all sides to come to him. Chapter 14 ends with the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then it goes straight into our verses. It's important to note here, R.C. Sproul tells us that rabbinic opinion, the opinion of the rabbis, said that one must not associate with ungodly men. So these rabbis, these religious leaders, had almost this standoffish attitude. We don't associate with those, those groups. We shouldn't teach them. It's not what Jesus is doing, is it? So look at our first of four points this evening. Now at the start of chapter 15. Here's our first point in verse 1 and the start of verse 2. The congregation's identity. The congregation's identity. It's the same for all three of these parables. Who are they? Well, we've got four groups mentioned in verses 1 and 2. But those four groups are split into two. Tax collectors and sinners mentioned together. And then we've got Pharisees, Pharisees and scribes mentioned together. It says, now all the tax collectors or publicans in, in the KJV and the sinners or heathens were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. First, I love that descriptive description about Jesus. They were coming near. 
the, the language tells us it's habitual. It's a regular thing that happens around Jesus. It's a pattern. Those were the ones listening to him. Those are the ones who have ears to hear from the end of chapter 14. That's important. They are approaching the approachable Jesus. They're the ones listening. And according to the accusations, they're the ones eating with him. They're the ones being welcomed by him. It's interesting, Luke uses the word all. This isn't unusual. We're seeing pattern language all the way through. It's, it's common. It's not infrequent. It's not in an insignificant number. The scribes and Pharisees are accusing Jesus, saying that this is a pattern. And they, these are the complainers. These are the, the grumblers, the murmurers, pointing the finger. They think they have it all together. And the point is that all people are naturally lost. But this group of religious leaders doesn't see it about themselves. In other places in Scripture, we, we find the same uh, perceptions portrayed. You, you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18. I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. What a warped attitude. Listen to this uh, Pharisee's prayer. Not from Scripture, but from the first century A.D. I thank you, Lord, my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the sanctuary and not with those who sit on the street corners. I rise early and they rise early. I rise to attend to the word of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They attend to futile things. I exert myself and they exert themselves. I exert myself and receive a reward. And they exert themselves and receive no reward. I run and they run. I run to the life in the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. You see the attitude towards the common man? There's a line in between. A wall in between. It's an attitude of pride and complacency. Maybe we look down on these scribes and Pharisees when perhaps there's some of these attitudes in ourselves over other groups of people where we have lines in between. However, we might define that. And we need to be reminded that if we are saved, it is all by grace. And we should desire that, that salvation of all men and women, boys and girls, with no lines. We also know there are no hopeless cases when it comes to the gospel. Now, of course, we need to be careful with definitions. We've already labeled these different groups, you see. These are the categories stated by the gospel writer, Luke. But I, I get the feeling that he's using the categories that the scribes and Pharisees or even the common man might use. He's using their terminology here. He's explaining what this looks like from their perspective. Why do I say that? Well, we have to remember that it's not any man's categorization or label that, that matters, but only God's. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, there are sinners in all of these categories, regardless of the image that some of these scribes and Pharisees tried to portray. They're all sinners in need of a Savior, sheep in need of rescue. All are lost, both then and now, naturally. 
you see the issue here. The problem is the misconception that these scribes and Pharisees think they are safe when they are not. So that's the congregation's identity. Remember those two, two groups. Second point at the end of verse 2, the complaint's validity. The complaint's validity. Look at the accusation. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Frankly, they're correct. They're right. In more ways than one, the charge is laid against the Lord Jesus, and he's, he's guilty. He does receive sinners, and he does eat with them. And you look into the original language there, and it includes cordiality, affection to his bosom. You can see sim a similar event back in chapter 5, where Jesus shares a meal with Levi, and all his tax collector friends come along. See, this is key to all three of the parables. To them, to the scribes and Pharisees, this is not only inappropriate and, and disgraceful, this is a scandal. We can think of many times when Jesus spent time with sinners. Why? Because that was his mission to seek and save the lost. He's not ashamed to do that, to meet these people. He receives them. He doesn't overlook them. He's kind, but he never affirms them in their sin. No. He brings the solution to their sin. He brings the solution to their lostness. You see, well, let's just pause for a moment. In trying to be Christ-like, we have to be careful. We have to show much wisdom when we mix with unbelievers, with sinners. And you must do it with a purpose, the purpose of, of bringing the gospel. Of course, you never join unbelievers in their sin. Multiple Proverbs tell you that. Proverbs 24 verse 1, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. And it's pointing to that on a very basic level, many other passages point at this as well, we, we shouldn't desire to be unequally yoked with them. We shouldn't be in sin with them. But I've seen too many people justifying hanging out with friends, unbelieving friends, in order to evangelize them when it's clearly not the intention. I've seen too many young people falling romantically for someone who is not a believer. So much devastation. These, these things are specifically warned against and forbidden in Scripture for your good. You see, the picture and the application here is a mixed one from, from Jesus. The key question is, who is Jesus addressing with this, this message? Who is the application of these parables for? And the answer is, it's to both groups. And we've got to keep those sinners and tax collectors and those scribes and Pharisees in our mind's eye. You can imagine that accusation in, in one way from this side, the scribes and Pharisees. This man, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But think about the tax collectors and sinners hearing those very same words. This man he receives sinners and he eats with them. 
His arms are open. What? Really? People like you and me. Where is he? Let's go. Jesus receives sinners today too. People like you and me. Mercy is available. You can look through the New Testament and you can see that he welcomes and saves doctors, prostitutes, adulterers, educated, rich, poor, soldiers, fishermen, extortioners, persecutors, families, tax collectors, people in the trades, foreign dignitaries, thieves, murderers. And then imagine how many were in that how many different people and types were in that 3000 at Pentecost. He welcomes sinners, but he doesn't leave them where they are. Listen to this example from the time of George Whitfield. It's the same today, you see. Mr. Whitfield said, Lady Huntingdon, these ladies have been preferring a very heavy charge against you. They say that in your sermon last night, you made use of this expression. So ready is Christ to receive sinners who come to him that he is willing to receive the devil's castaways. Mr. Whitfield pleaded guilty to the charge. And he told them of the following circumstance. A wretched woman came to me this morning and said, Sir, I was passing the door of your chapel and hearing the voice of someone preaching. I did what I have never been in the habit of doing. I went in. And one of the first things I heard you say was that Jesus would receive willingly the devil's castaways. Sir, I have been in the town for many years And I'm so worn out in his service that I may with truth be called one of the devil's castaways. Do you think that Jesus would receive me? Aye, said Whitfield. He assured her that there was not a doubt of it if she was willing to go to him. From the sequel, it appeared that this was a case of true conversion. And Lady Huntingdon was assured that the woman left a very charming testimony behind her, that though her sins had been of a crimson hue, the atoning blood of Christ had washed them white as snow. You see, what do they hear from Jesus when he does welcome them, when he sits at the table with them? They hear the gospel. They hear hope. They hear how to be saved. They hear the one seeking them and finding them. They come to realize, I'm a sinner. I know I'm not right with God. This Jesus comes and spends time with me. He welcomes me. He eats with me. This is not normal behavior for a religious leader. Is he affirming me in my sin? Am I okay to stay like this? Absolutely not. Of course not. Jesus has come to save, not to leave them lost. These tax collectors and sinners deserve no more grace or mercy from God than I do. None of us deserve mercy or grace. We're lost. It's our fault. God could simply leave us in our misery, and that would be entirely just and fair. We've rejected the Savior. We've rejected the one provided as a ransom, and yet he comes with open arms. The complaint against Jesus is entirely true. 
Praise God. But it's not valid because it's full of hypocrisy. The congregation's identity, the complaint's validity. And thirdly, we now get to the parables themselves, these, these stories which teach us so much. So point number three, the conclusion's inevitability. The conclusion's inevitability. We're looking at two different sections here, verses 3 to 6 and verses 8 and 9. Let me read those, that first one to you. So he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And there are similar notes in the second parable as well. And what we see here, firstly, under this heading, is the need for the search. The need for the search. Gets us into the picture itself. The illustration, you notice right at the start of verse 3, he asks his hearers a question. What man among you? Seems that the scribes and Pharisees are, are the ones with the truth but they don't seem eager to be the ones to go out to this group to rescue those in need. So Jesus here presents them with a rescue story, illustrating how every good shepherd would do this. It's a hypothetical narrative. He draws his listeners in. There's danger. What will happen? What would you do? Is a 1% loss acceptable to a farmer? Can God live with that? I think most farmers would. But there's a bigger message here about the individual value of every one of Christ's elect. The sense here is that this is what you should do. Obviously, if you are a true shepherd, a good shepherd... And he's justifying his actions in the light of of this stoic attitude from the religious leaders. You can imagine Christ Jesus here reasoning. He's saying that this is understandable because to God, this person, this sheep is valuable. Then why aren't you going out? Taking the good news to the needy must be the response of someone who has truly experienced undeserved mercy and grace themselves. The need for the search is because there's a lost one out there, outside of the fold. It's the reputation sheep have. They stray, they wander. In England, I lived in the countryside in the North Yorkshire Moors. You'd find them all over the place. Each farmer had those distinctive colors that spray on different parts of the sheep so they could recognize them. And some had red and green at the back end, others blue at the front end. And during the spring and the summer they'd, and, and fall, they'd be let out on the North Yorkshire moors, getting in the way of cars on the roads, getting stuck in hedges, finding bizarre ways to get injured and die. I must have seen dozens of dead sheep in streams when hiking. And then later in the year, they'd they'd get them brought back to the farm, keep them warm over the winter, and the the farmers would go up onto the moorland and collect them all. And somehow, they'd they'd find that 
they'd got six sheep from the farm next door in their area. And the other farmers probably had some of theirs too. They sorted all that out later. They went astray, going where they wanted to, not able to find their way back, even if they knew they were lost. Because there are dangers out there. I remember working on a pheasant farm for a couple of weeks and a, a, few, a few days in, we had all these plans of what we were going to do that day and yet we dropped everything because we needed to go help a local farmer where there was a fox killing lambs. And it seems that every farmer in the area dropped everything that day to go and help with this problem because it was everybody's problem. They're motivated by protecting their livelihood, their livelihood. But the motivation of the Lord Jesus goes much deeper. He loves the sheep. They are lost, they're in danger. They are his though. He must pursue them. In a spiritual sense, we have enemies we need to be protected from. And safety is found in the shepherd, sticking close to him. Hearing and obeying his voice. The shepherd, the owner, cares for the safety of the sheep. It's his job to provide for and care for and and protect from predators. Often the hired hand that would be looking after them. And Jesus points that out in John 10, doesn't he? Thinking about the difference between that good and bad shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the kind of shepherd you want. Not the one who runs when danger comes. Not the one that avoids the troubled sheep. No. One that sacrificially cares at great cost to themselves. And in the case of Jesus, the ultimate cost of his own life as a substitute. He loves the sheep. Self-denying love. In some senses, he's saying to the supposed spiritual leaders of Israel, isn't this what you should be doing? Shouldn't this be your attitude to those who are spiritually lost all around you? But what are you doing? You're looking down your nose at them. No, you should be bringing them into the fold. You should be bringing them the truth or in the example of the lost coin. There's a picture of value again. Most commentators say it's about a day of wages. Of course you search. Because this coin, this sinner, this lost person has value. Now sometimes truths are difficult to pull apart, can be applied in different ways. This, this lost sheep, this lost coin could represent the sinner outside the fold of God. I, I think it does. The unbeliever in desperate need of salvation But in other places, we can legitimately see this picture of of people wandering away. We find those kind of illustrations of of sheep too. Perhaps a believer who is backslidden. I've seen it applied all these different ways. Sometimes, from a human perspective, it can be hard to discern between the two. Tell the difference. There's a tension. You see, this is therefore help for the backslidden believer and the lost unbeliever. The applications are true either way. Takes my mind back to Isaiah 53, that that beautiful picture of Christ as the suffering servant and his mission. Hundreds of years years before, in a picture of salvation, verse 6, it uses our picture 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The one hanging on the cross of Calvary. This lostness, this going astray. It's used as a picture for both dead, the dead and lost unbeliever, and the weak and sick wandering believer whose pulse might be so weak that it's barely noticeable. They might look like an unbeliever, like the dead and lost one. But you see, both are in desperate danger. The true believer can never be lost, you see. But how can we tell with any certainty that they are a true believer if this is the way they're living? We're looking for a heartbeat. We're looking for the fight against sin. We're looking for Christ-likeness. But they've gone into a far and distant land. And we're eagerly scanning the horizon to see if they're coming back. We don't know. We're not sure. We're hoping. We're praying. How do we identify the difference between the believer who has fallen and the one who is not a believer at all? Puritan George Swinnock helps by comparing sheep and pigs. He says, No man is judged healthy by a flushing color in his face, but by a good complexion. God esteems non-holy for a particular carriage, for like one instance, but for a general course, a pattern. A sinner in some few acts may be very good. Judas repents, Cain sacrifices, the scribes pray and fast, and yet all were very false. In the most deadly diseases, there may be some intermissions and some good prognostics. A saint in some few acts, you see how we switch sides now, that's, that's the unrepentant. A saint in some few acts may be very bad. Noah is drunk. David defiles his neighbor's wife. And Peter denies his best friend. Yet these persons were heaven's favorites. The best gold must have some grains of allowance. Sheep may fall into the mire, but swine love night and day to wallow in it. A Christian may stumble, nay, he may fall, but he gets up and walks on in the way of God's commandments. The bent of his heart is right, and the scope of his life is straight, and thence he is deemed sincere. See, the remedy to backsliding, though, we do know. Jesus, the good shepherd, will lose none of his own. They will be brought back. That is one of the reasons many see Scripture as giving us the expectation of one coming back before they die in order to prove that they are saved. There's no mention of the word backslidden or backslider in the Bible. True believers do sin, but that's not the pattern. That's what we are told in Scripture. Why? Because we're told that the true believer will produce fruit, will produce evidence of life. 1 John 2.19 states starkly, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. It's desperately sad. But the message of our passage is that however lost you are, There is hope. 
There is one who pursues, one who finds, one who saves, no matter how far you might be into sin, no matter what mess you have made, no matter where you are today, there is a route through Christ to forgiveness, to mercy, to grace. Yes, sin is, always will be grievous. It's against God. There will be consequences. But He is a God who tells you that forgiveness is available. He tells us to be willing to forgive countless times, and He sets the example in our own salvation. And then every time we sin. There are caveats we need to put in place because some today, and and in the early church, frankly, took the liberal forgiveness of, of Christ as a license to sin. That's where your mind begins to reason and jump. I suggest that that's evidence that you might not be saved. You're looking for excuses. No, humble yourself before God. Confess your sin. Surrender all to Him and then fight sin with His help. First John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is critical here, absolutely critical, is to always remember who Jesus is speaking to and reasoning with in this passage. Whose objection is, is he answering here? The answer is the scribes and Pharisees. He's telling these parables from their perspective, their understanding. Think about it. They think that they are the 99 sheep. They think they're the nine safe coins in the pocket. Hendrickson takes that view. They think they're the safe ones. And in some ways, Jesus is explaining to them why he's spending time with these wretched sinners. And is he not reasoning with them by effectively saying, okay, okay, assuming that you're the 99, like like you think and act, safely in the shepherd's fold, is it not right for me to show some mercy to these poor lost sinners to try to bring them in? Is it not the healthy, it, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, Surely you you distinguish gentlemen and the healthy ones, right? Do you see that? Well, as we see later in the chapter, in multiple places in the Gospels, he goes on to challenge even that assumption, that they are safe in the 99. He blows that perception to smithereens, but he's holding that back for now. Perhaps the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel helps us here. Chapter 34, verse 15. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. He's saying, assuming you gents have got everything in order, surely it's good for me to go and seek and find the lost sheep and the lost coin, right? That's how he's reasoning with them. And some theologians do point other explanations out for the 99 sheep, the nine remaining coins. Maybe they think they've grown up from childhood and they're, they're already in, in the club or, or something like that, in the fear of God, in, in His pasture. Perhaps others suggest, other theologians suggest that there are some who see themselves as, as being saved from their youth 
and, and of false assurance sometimes. And, and maybe there are some applications there too. There are certainly blessings that come with coming to Christ at a young age. And, and some people say, well, maybe these, this is a picture that we can have of, of people who came to Christ in their youth and they've never wandered away. And they just stay in their own little holy club and never reach out. Yeah, I can see applications there too. But, but I think the, these Pharisees think they're the 99 safe ones. Whatever we conclude these 99 are, oh, the shepherd has his eye, his eye on the one. That's the main point. And the lady has her eye on the one coin. That's the main point. That's a principal focus of the parables. That's the need of the search. What about the extent of the search? Look at all the effort involved in the one searching. In that first instance, he takes all the initiative. Deny divine initiative. First parable, he leaves the others. He goes. Then there's that picture of effort. Then the key words at the end of verse 4. Let me ask you, how long does he look? Until he finds it. Look at the lady with the lost coin in verse 8. She lights a lamp. That costs money. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully. She seeks diligently. She scours. For how long? Until she finds it. It's a thorough search. All the time, the coin does nothing. That's the sinner in this illustration. Spurgeon says, such is the love and tenderness of his heart that he cannot bear that one of his own should be in jeopardy. He takes no rest as long as a soul for whom he shed his blood still abides under the dominion of Satan and under the power of sin. Therefore, the great shepherd, neither night or day, forgets his sheep. How long do you look for something? Depends on the value of it, doesn't it? The importance of it. If I lose a golf ball, I'll probably look for it for a couple of minutes with a couple of other guys. Has a value to me, to, to, to some degree. But that's not the thinking here. Okay, a lost soul is worth a million dollars. Is that what we say? I think I'll, I'll dedicate, I don't know, six months of my life to that. No, there's no calculation here. This shepherd is resolved to search until he finds. The woman will search until she finds. That's the extent. What about the result of the search? He inevitably finds the sheep and shows love and care, placing it on his shoulders, carrying it. She inevitably finds the coin. Then comes the rejoicing with friends. You ever experienced that? The feeling of finding something precious, the joy it brings. Maybe you thought you'd never see it again. But we need to be careful here not to portray Jesus as one scrambling around trying to find people. He's no failure. No, he came to save a particular people. A people who were powerless and lost and rebellious, and he will save all he intends to. None will be missing. No empty seats in heaven. And this language reminds us of the scriptural doctrine of effectual calling and of perseverance or preservation of the saints. 
Let me ask you, how many times has Jesus lost one of his own? Not once. How many times has he failed to bring someone who asks, seeks, and knocks to salvation? Not once. How many times has Jesus turned away a truly repentant sinner? Not once. How many times has Jesus lost to the devil? Not once. Has a true Christian ever lost their salvation? Not once. We might be powerless and lost. Jesus is the exact opposite, and that's where our hope lies. He has all power. He's already gone on ahead of us into heaven. He is the first fruits, and we are sure to follow. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the way to our true home. Look at the rejoicing in each of those cases. Rejoicing in the community, not just with the shepherd or with the lady who lost the coin, you see. We have the congregation's identity, the complaints, validity, the conclusions, inevitability, and finally, we get a glimpse into heaven. But also a reminder that the application is personal, and the result profoundly different for the lost and found. This is our fourth point, the comparison's profundity. The comparison's profundity. And looking really at verse 7 and and verse 10. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. Remember that this is being written from the scribes and Pharisees' perspective. Thus, they don't think they need to repent. They think they're righteous. They're not. It's tragic. It's dangerous. They think they're the shepherds, but they're not. It's identical for the lady who finds the coin in verse 10. They reinforce each other, these two parables. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As well as the earthly joy, in each of these parables, there's heavenly joy. We don't have a picture here of a stoic God. He's full of joy. Won't you, scribes and Pharisees, rejoice with me when when God transforms a lowly, lowly sinner from the gutter? They won't do it. They complain. They grumble. When Jesus opens the crack in the door of heaven and tells us the reaction of the heavenly host when a sinner comes to faith, it's a different story. You see the disconnect. He's reasoning with them that, re- that reaching out to those they think are lost and then being saved should bring great joy. But they seem more concerned with their lives of hypocrisy. He's showing them their sin. He's showing them their lostness. He's showing them their need of the Savior who's standing right there face to face with them. In spite of all their religiosity, worthless. The comparison is profound between these two groups listening to these two parables. These these so-called wretches of society, the tax collectors, the sinners, they have ears to hear. They're seeing their sin. seems they're the ones repenting. They're the ones putting their trust in Jesus. And there is true joy and rejoicing in heaven over it. And yet, there's a dire misunderstanding on earth in the temple among all these rulers. 
These should be the ones that you are going out to and asking, showing them how to be right with God. Surely, many of these are among the ones on the last day hearing those dreadful words, I never knew you. But God, I did all this for you. I never knew you. It's a desperate plight played out time and time again across different religions, different generations, even across what is called the Christian church. Even among respected evangelical churches, many people are religious. They follow the rules, but there's no saving faith. Their heart is not involved. They've not been brought down to their knees because of their sin, in need of forgiveness because they haven't seen their lostness. Jesus is not just another addition to your life. Many people have not had their heads lifted up after they've seen their lostness to see Christ as the answer, the only answer, through sheer grace, through His death on the cross. That humbling experience naturally results in worship and praise and obedience and sacrifice and willing service following Jesus, the one who came and found you. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost means everything to the believer. Just thinking, just thinking about that woman who lost a day's wages, then found it again, then probably spent more on the party to celebrate than the value of what she found. One writer said this, from an economic point of view, the woman's response is folly. But the, you've got to see the main point of the parable. It's not about economics. It's about God's grace. Perhaps respectfully, as one put it, the folly of God's grace in the fact that it's so liberal and enormous that seeks the lost until they are found. And once found, celebrates their recovery in abandon. The joy of God has no price tag. Comparison between the two groups is stark. One thinks they're safe, but Jesus is explaining to them in multiple ways that that's not necessarily the case until and unless they have come to God, recognizing that they are lost sinners just like that other group. But the implication here is that they're deceived. They haven't done that. Look again at the comparison. When a person does see their sin and lostness, does repent, and Christ does become their Savior, that glimpse of heaven's joy is just a foretaste of what's ahead for that new believer with a spiritually beating heart now. The search was a success, and it's a miracle every single time. Every conversion is one more step closer to the end a celebration on the way to the ultimate celebration. God Himself is rejoicing while these religious people on earth complain. The religious who think they are acceptable to God, think they're righteous, so therefore I don't need to repent. No. These first two parables see the lost being found, then joy. Repentance and faith from God's perspective. And so, 
This evening we've seen the congregation's identity, the complaints, validity, the conclusions, inevitability, and the comparison's profundity. Listen, don't be one of those tragic stories where you're lost and never found. You know there are those people who will never admit to being lost, are too proud to ask for help. Don't let that be true of you in a spiritual sense. Everything is on the table here. Your eternal destination is at stake. This is where you have to be absolutely sure you've got this right, that you're not deceived like this group. Some people who are convinced they're on the right track, they think they're fine. Maybe they're religious, but they're on the wrong track. Scripture tells us the right track. It's right here. What we find in these two parables are these two groups of people who both need God, all lost. Some are drawn to Him. Others are determined to kill Him. Jesus is saying to them, why don't you come too? Overcome all the prejudices, just come. See more of that next week. We know Jesus won't lose one of his people, one of his elect, and the gospel will be offered until all have been safely gathered in. There's a warning here in Scripture alongside a genuine invitation. There is an end to the search. There is an end to the search. A day when the gospel message will no longer be offered. The mission of Jesus seeking and saving the lost is a time-limited offer. You'll hear lots of offers in the next seven days, I guarantee it. Black Friday coming up. None is more important than this. The free offer of the gospel. All you need to do is come. Recognize your lostness. See that your sin needs to be forgiven. We know in God's grace that people do come to the Savior in their older years, but it seems to be rare. People are often hardened. Or perhaps it does not matter your age. When you've rejected the gospel time and time again, even as a young person, you may have become hardened too. That was the reality for me. That drove me to my knees at age 17, thinking that I'd had the gospel offered to me thousands of times during those 17 years. And I'd rejected it every single time. In God, Jesus Christ, could have concluded with me using the words of Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time to search and a time to give up the lost. It's an individual thing, but it's a warning to humanity for whom the bell tolls. When Christ comes again, the search is over. The lost will remain lost for all eternity. They didn't want to be found. They didn't recognize or desire to hear or obey the shepherd's voice. And so the invitation today is for all of these groups, or everyone, come, whoever you are, the offer is genuine. doesn't matter what age you are, what position you have in society, how bad a sinner you have been. The message is the same. Ask, seek, knock. He will save you. Free pardon from sin is offered this evening. And the conclusion that Jesus is driving to here 
is for these religious leaders to see this, to agree that if the shepherd went after the sheep, and if the lady went all to all that effort for the coin, isn't it much more important than either of those two things to rescue a single soul from hell? So, why are you condemning it, scribes and Pharisees? Why aren't you doing it, scribes and Pharisees? Maybe you need it, scribes and Pharisees. Oh, my friend, one of the key messages from this chapter is that Christ is willing and able to save you. We can see the heart of God tonight and the free offer and invitation of the gospel to those who are lost in a perilous position. We see the love and the persistence and the joy of God. We see the emphasis on His mercy for the perceived highest and lowest in society. He has a special place for the marginalized, doesn't He? Do you see how precious we are to God? Don't miss the individual nature of this. This is about one sheep and one coin. This business is between each individual here and Christ Himself, you and Christ. Are you lost? Are you wandering? Forget everyone else in the room. Get right with God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these wonderful pictures of grace and mercy, of being lost and being found. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each of us here this night, each of those listening even, would be in the fold, would be found by the Savior, would do whatever is necessary would ask, seek, knock, would see this free offer of the gospel and would flee to Christ, the only Savior. For any wandering, any backsliding, pray, Lord, that these words would be a wake-up call. In your grace and mercy, that you'd bring all of us close to you, to your bosom, And that on that last day, all of us here would be found among the group welcomed into heaven, not through our own works, but to the glory of your Son through his finished work on the cross. Oh God, we plead with you. Would you be glorified by saving a sinner yet tonight? Lord, give us a a glimpse into the doorway of heaven and to the joy that brings the heavenly host. Would you be glorified through that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.